0: Father all-glorious, Psalm 104 tells us that the birds of the air have their habitation and they sing among the branches. You water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Would we, your people, be like the earth itself, satisfied with your work? Father, you have caused the earth to bring forth food and wine to gladden the heart and now may your will reveal, revealed to us, may it gladden our hearts. Help us to grasp at the depth of our heart what knowing you looks like in our day-to-day lives. Speak through your word for your good and our our good, and for our glory, your glory and our good. In the name of the one who came for us, the living word of God, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in this, uh, we're going to be looking at this passage in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Very penetrating words by our Lord Jesus. Um, Remarkable words in in their power. We've begun a series. A series on what I've entitled Eight Attitudes. You can toss in behaviors as well. These all come from the Gospel of Mark and we've begun a series on what does it look like to be a disciple discipleship disciple is a buzzword in the christian church uh, in in the christian circles discipleship we're trying to put some handles on it what does it look like to be a disciple you've read the word you've heard the word what does it look like so last week we looked briefly at the idea of that god that that Jesus called his disciples to be with him this is sort of the implications of what that looked like and now we begin sort of the the first attitude. The first attitude is surrender. A survey some time ago in Great Britain, some 2,000 people, just a few years back, they admitted that they would rather watch a meal being cooked on TV than than to cook themselves. Uh, A a large majority of this 2,000 people said they agreed that they would rather just watch or look at photos online The shows on the telly that the Brits enjoy are The Great British Bake Off, MasterChef, and Come Dine With Me. Those are the most popular. And apparently there's been a study of the same. And I looked at the cookingchannel.com or something. I was in disbelief how many cooking shows there are. Uh, I won't even begin to tell. I mean, there's so many of them. They're alphabetized. Uh, and just dozens and dozens. But apparently, people love watching these shows, but they don't cook. Or, or very few people actually cook. Now, people have excuses. They have, uh, don't have enough time. Uh, the dishes look complicated to manage. The study revealed that the Brits spend almost five hours a week consuming food media. But only four hours a week cooking. Again, a very small percent practice cooking, making the recipes. One in ten said they that had been over a year since they had even tried a recipe. Old patterns of cooking controlled the kitchen. I actually read also another thing that uh, I'm under the Brits. uh, They're not known for being chefs, are they? Is that that the thing? the uh, the Brits only they came somebody found out they only know three recipes I don't know now what am I doing I only know two you know so what am I what am I doing here and uh, they all have to do with the microwave so so watching and scrolling and reading more time than cooking it is amazing though just to watch someone make a raspberry tart you know you just stare at them, stare at a whole plateful of those or someone who makes a a cake. It looks like the British flag on it. It's mesmerizing. But I wonder if the news ever gets back to these producers of these shows. Do you realize that no one is cooking at all as a result of all our work? But I wonder if people imagine, even though they don't actually try these recipes, I wonder if there's people who, and they don't learn how to do them, but I wonder if there's people they imagine, because they're in pro- close proximity to this cooking, But they imagine themselves to be cooks. In our text today, Jesus purposely calls a crowd to himself, and he says these most difficult words. And I just imagine someone like Peter saying, "You know, Jesus, we've been working hard to get a crowd. Something gets giving some momentum here, and then you tell them about picking up their cross, and and you know, just imagine the reaction." Jesus is calling people away from being viewers to being doers and as I mentioned before this is a crisis moment just like the the moment in the boat on the lake with the storm it's a crisis moment who can we turn to who can control no one can we can't turn to anyone this is just a tragic uh, thing in life no let's turn to Jesus maybe he, he's got something. the crisis that Jesus intends is now in the form of his teaching. Do we imagine ourselves to be followers of Christ? Perhaps we listen a lot, attend church. We imagine ourselves to be followers of Christ. But this idea of surrendering our, our will, picking up our cross, denying ourselves, the cessation of self-preservation. Stop saving yourself. Imagine all these things are not really, really real for us. Are we would-be followers or are we followers of Christ? Let me just by way of a... As I think about preaching, I try to figure out how do we kind of like a, a shovel or a lever how do we l- lift this text out so it means something We're f- you're, I think most of you are familiar with this text. How can we so I, by way of these questions I'm just trying to get to the meaning of this so just by way of an outline take a look you might want to follow in your your sermon page there. do we lose point number one do we or question one do we lose when we trust and cast our lives upon Jesus? do we lose? Because he is talking about losing our lives, but do we lose? And the second question, do we gain anything by living outside the call of Jesus? Jesus says, what does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world? And of course, Jesus says, lose your soul. But can we gain anything by living outside of the call of Jesus? And number three, do we perceive rightly the inescapable direction of history itself? If anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous generation, I will be ashamed of of him when I come in the glory of my Father. Do we rightly perceive the inescapable direction of history itself? Well, why did I include those passages from Mark 2 and Mark 4? This is an amazing person. He has declared the ability to forgive sins. He has done something that in the Jewish mind was outrageous. You cannot do this. You cannot declare someone forgiven of sins unless you're God. And you can't declare someone forgiven of sins until the day when we find that out, which is the day of judgment. That's future. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. I'm here to declare to you what the future will reveal. I'm here to reveal to you what you can be sure of that will be revealed in the future. My son, he says to this man in Mark 2, your sins are forgiven. Now you can all you know we can we can all say words, right? Jesus is aware words can be fairly cheap. I mean the, the, the grumblers in the front row, the Pharisees and others, uh, who is this man that you know declares these things? This can't be he's blaspheming, presuming to be God or presuming upon God. So then Jesus puts his identity together with the declaration of the forgiveness of sins and says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to, to say these things, um, well, what's easier, to just say it or actually to, to heal this man? How about this? We'll put both those concepts together so when you see this man stand and walk, you'll know two things. I have the power to do it. But more importantly, I have the power to forgive sins in the jewish mind that's presuming upon judgment day and jesus says this is the gospel this is the gospel this is why we're here we're here because we can live confidently in the work of jesus for us this is the gospel and let me just ask this again in light of this truth from these truths from mark 2 do we ever lose anything by trusting Jesus? And if this Jesus who can declare the forgiveness of sins uh, tells me to pick up my cross and follow Him, stop my self-preservation strategies, if this Jesus tells me that, I have a context in which to trust Him. He's the one in Mark 2 who declares a man forgiven of sins, and He declares that of me simple faith in him and of you. But there are implications. There are things that, by consequence, flow out of the forgiveness of sins. This is the entry point into the Christian life. 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out all fear. This is the beginning point of the Christian life. This is the, you mean I have a relationship with God. It will not be diminished. God does not love me less based on my performance. Perfect love is casting out this fear. There is a heart chemistry that takes place in us, produced by grace, irresistible grace. In the language of Paul in Romans 12, in light of the mercies of God, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a way. There's a way of reasoning and thinking about the Christian life. Therefore, how might I act in light of this? We can also call it discipleship. If I am justified by faith alone, what's my grumbling about? His call to surrender to him. This m- magnificent person who res- stands against these religious pride and self-righteousness and the, the gospel comes breaking into this, this home in-, in Mark 2 and his power exhibited by speaking to the wind and the waves in Mark 4. You see Mark 8 about the call to deny yourself, cast yourself upon Jesus... Read Mark over and over and over. It doesn't have these words as penetrating as they are and perhaps even threatening. They fall within a context of this magnificent person. Do we ever lose when we trust and cast ourselves upon Jesus? See, what Jesus is doing is he is putting front and center the call to humility. He's calling people out of the crowd. He's calling people to not imagine that they are followers of Christ without a full embracing of an identity with him. Do we lose when we trust and cast our lives upon Jesus? Well, here at Trinity, we always are learning how to cast ourselves upon Jesus. It's not one weekend. It's not one sermon. It's our lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of casting myself, learning how to surrender to Christ and remembering his beauty, remembering his grace. That's the problem in my heart. What's the problem in your heart? We've We've lost the vision of his loveliness. We've lost the the vision of his his glory. Secondly, do we gain anything by living outside of the call of Jesus? Look at uh, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then here's Jesus, sort of doing some math. Let, let's do a calculation. What would happen if you gain the whole world? But then there's a subtraction. <laughs> you, you've got a lot going on in your in your pocketbook, the world. But then there's a subtraction. You you lose your soul. It's one of the most I don't know brilliant, pithy, I mean just just wisdom and just rattles rattles people, Christian and non-Christian alike. This it helps the grace of God is here in this passage. You mean I should be thinking of these penetrating quite kind of questions. Don't we assume that if a person has wealth, a good family and a nice retirement ahead of them, that they have lived a good life. Or they have lived the good life. Jesus defines the good life as casting one's life upon himself and in trusting surrendering uh, the future this is what the disciples are doing the one who can declare forgiveness of sins the one who can calm the storm he he's in charge of my days. And I surrender my self-determining strategies to him. I mentioned last week that we live in an age that aspires to be non-committal. That's a virtue in our age. There's so many stories. There's so many possibilities. So many different identities I can try on. We live in an age that aspires to be non-committal. So many conflicting voices, so many, so much dissonance out there. Right? Who can? How can you come to a, a conclusion about anything? Find a lot of people just sort of throwing their hands up these days. Oh, I don't know. Interesting how Jesus, boy, just—it's impossible to avoid his rhetorical question here. What does it profit? Someone to gain the whole world, and we go away, (laughs) Uh, and lose your soul. It's a rhetorical question that is used as a technique to drive home a point. My parents used to say, "What were you thinking?" (laughs) That's how they drove home the point. Remember, I man, crazy story from my Cub Scout days. I pushed a chunk of boulders and rocks over. It was a crazy thing. And a, a, a man came up to me. I was about nine years old. And he said, what were you thinking? And I remember, consciously aware, nothing. Like, like, nothing. You know? I mean, if you really want an answer, it's, I don't know what. Yeah. It just looked exciting. I don't want to give up possession of myself. Do you? I'm not. I don't wake up in the morning thinking that. Hey, all right, put this on my to do list. Uh, the call of Jesus is to relinquish possession of ourselves. Now, my question is: Is this sort of like uh, some sort of uh, I don't know what is this asceticism? Is it just sort of you flog yourself? You stop eating. You get into pretzel position. You 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 just it's it's this wearisome, terrible life of following Jesus. Is that that what he... This is the one who is rebuilding, re-imaging the image of God in us, and that means flourishing, goodness, fullness. And what do we carry? What do I carry? I carry the burden of myself. Burden. And I am so convinced of my self-determining strategies that I don't understand that myself at the center of all this is the problem. And Jesus says, you can save yourself. And I think I, I, I got, he got my attention. You can save yourself if you surrender your right to self-determination. Stop saving yourself. As followers of Christ, justified freely by His grace, listen to this, we are no longer in possession of ourselves. Jesus' reasons. Now don't be thinking you can gain the whole world. Focus on your soul. Abandon yourself as you focus on your soul. Lay aside your efforts at self-determination. God has embraced us in Christ's atoning death. This love has sought you out. It speaks, he speaks to us. The spirit now is working to overcome our self-defensive, self-preserving resistance. Cast yourself upon him. Discover fullness of life. You cannot, you were not ever able or made to carry the burden you're carrying. You cannot masterfully create a life. Only God can create a life and your life and direct it. The call to surrender is the call to entrust oneself to the one who can keep your very soul secure. The Heidelberg Catechism, I love this, question 90 says this, what is the birth of the new self? It's a great question. What is the what is the, what's this what does born again mean? Here's the answer. Complete joy in Christ. That's the answer. Complete joy in Christ and a strong desire to live according to the will of God. Did you know that's what it meant to be born again? Did you know that it's a strong desire? So when Jesus calls people to pick up their cross, embrace suffering. That's what's going on. Embrace suffering. Accept the humble place. You mean there's something better in that that is joyful and good for me than my own efforts. Jesus speaks these words in order to foster strong desire. I'm willing to be under your tutelage, Jesus. Train me. And here's what's going on. I'm a prideful person. In fact, I think I'm probably the most prideful person in this room. Because could match story. You tell me a story, I'll tell you a story. So, pride is not a very secure thing. You need people to re- acknowledge how great you are. You need others. You need achievements, right? You need people. It's hard to be prideful on a deserted island. There's like, oh, yeah. a couple of monkeys there. So, so you have. I mean, you really. Let me propose to you this a rhetorical question: What's more stable, pride or humility? What's Jesus doing? Is this is this? Just trying to get you to understand this is love. It's the most loving thing in the world to, to tell someone, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Stop saving yourself. That's the most loving thing a person could do because you are you're living in a fantasy world that you're you can maintain your life. So accept surrender in humility to the one who maintains everything. Accept stability. Huh, And do it with a strong desire. <laughs> and that's the gift of the Spirit and working through this new nature. Paul put it this way. Galatians 2:20, I'm crucified with Christ. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, justification established peace between God and him who, who loved me and gave himself for me the life I now I, I live I live by faith that's surrender you can't watch the Apostle Paul's life without saying that's surrender third third idea do we perceive rightly the inescapable direction of history itself? Uh, all of you, I look around here, I see teachers. I see leaders in the military. I see all kinds of... You, you, you interact with people, and there are times when your words don't make much... They, no one's listening. You ever had that experience? Now, here at Trinity, behind the pulpit, I never have that experience. <laughs> Why? What an attentive crowd. So, it's interesting how Jesus concludes this. How often had he seen people listen to him... And some eh kinda not bad. Interesting. Oh miracle worker. Nice. They didn't conclude that he, Jesus, history, converging sometime in the future, this world is heading in a direction, and he's in the middle of all of it. Didn't get that. Jesus does that. Verse thirty eight. He's coming again. Coming in the glory of his father with holy angels. Now we live in a time and Jesus let me get the whole let me get the whole verse 38 for whoever is ashamed of me there it is and I'm very careful with the word shame very careful for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels now this is the summary of this teaching section and Jesus connects it with the inevitability of history. Now we live in a world that's very similar to, uh, to what Peter described. Peter describes, I believe, it's in chapter, th- it's in chapter three, verse four. Peter describes uh, non-believers saying, "Where is the hope of his coming?" You remember coming, right? Why? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of time. Right? We got time. We've got plenty of time. Nothing's changing. It's the same world I, I saw when I was a kid. It's the same world I see as an adult. And so Peter's observing that the world thinks time is just kind of going nowhere. And it's just the same time. Christian, do you, do you connect your discipleship with time? Jesus does. Do you connect a close association with Jesus with the with the future of what will be revealed in the future? Are you living out an identity with Christ? Now, we live in a time when these kinds of things, I'm just telling you, it's just too hot. Media experts talk. What I'm doing this morning, it's called hot. It's a hot medium. It's just too hot for our age. We all grew up with, with TVs. And TVs, the media experts tell us, is a cool medium. It's made for, like, David Letterman and Seinfeld and uh, Barney. But that's what... We all grew up with this sense of, well, for instance, let's just say I was on television doing this whole... this, this sermon, right? And I hear this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, click. Domino's has... Two medium pizzas for ten dollars. You don't have to you don't have to deal with me. You don't have to deal with this. Why you got time, you got four hundred channels. You got you got it going on. You can stay in the cool world. You don't need anything hot like this. I wonder if they thought they had kind of a cool world in their own time. Jesus is going to be revealed with the glory of his Father in time is moving forward. You know nothing, you in the business world, you know that nothing changes unless there's urgency, right? Nothing changes unless something's urgent. I, I feel some urgency in verse 38. Do you know that God in his mercy to you is penetrating this imminent world this world of dominoes commercials, this world of where it just seems that you're just one click away from one diversion from another. This is like, it's like, it's like a dome over our lives, and God in His mercy is penetrating that that imminent buffering world with with transcendent truth, and it comes with remarkable authority and power. And increasingly, as one who does this as a calling, I recognize. Unless the Spirit of God gets a hold of these words, you just click, you click, you click. God in His grace stops us from clicking. You see, we're afraid of self-reflection. We're afraid of it. And I cannot imagine the people who heard Jesus this day didn't go, (laughs) I think I need a little afternoon of self-reflection. I've met someone who spoke in such a way that I cannot deny these words. Most of my struggle is to avoid suffering. Most of my effort. Now, Uh, I'm going to share a story. And maybe it's good Mary Ann's working this weekend, and maybe it's good she's not here, but it's a funny, it, well, it's a funny tragic story. And ladies, I hope you'll talk to me after church. So, um, Dr. Marshall, help me with Idaho, the little town next to, uh, no, Idaho, uh, Nor, uh, Coeur d'Alene, and then there's what, what's the? Sandpoint. Thank you, sir. Okay, so beautiful. So, Mary had an uncle who lived in Sandpoint, Idaho, and uh, we went to visit her Uncle Doug, and uh, and this was cowboy town. And uh, I don't know what I looked like when I walked in there, but we went into a bowling alley on Wednesday night. I look like a Californian. We went to a bowling alley on a Wednesday night. Now, I don't... And this is Uncle Doug's league, okay? I mean, he had the ball, the, the, the outfit, the whole deal, right? I've never seen anything like this. The whole town of Sandpoint was at the bowling alley. And you, you know this here. Yeah, you know this. So, and I, but it was, it was a cowboy town, meaning uh, the Y's were kind of somewhere over there. When I walked into this smoky room, and all I saw was smoke and a bunch of Bud Lights And big, tall cowboy guys. Uh, Man, cowboy's bowl? I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm walking in there, and I'm holding Marianne's hand. But among all these men, it's uncool to be walking with your wife. And I let her hand go. And she grabbed it and said, don't you dare. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? I'm like Peter, man. I would fold like a like a bad table, you know. That night, that night taught me something, you know. And um, this is what Jesus is doing. It's it's all this sense of I got to be cooking. I've been watching shows. All, I got to be a cook. I've been so close to you know in proximity to these cooking shows. This whole image. This whole this whole pretense. I don't want to suffer. That's why. And so, I don't want to suffer when I walk into a bowling alley with a bunch of cowboys. And you see, one commentator said, much of our suffering is the attempt in the face of God's freeing mercy. Listen to that. Freeing mercy to seek to repossess ourselves against His kingdom will. I'm going to repossess myself. And that's why we gather for worship, and it's okay. You come in here next Sunday. Man, I repossess myself. Man, I don't know what I was thinking, but I repossess myself again, and this is how I acted toward my wife. And Jesus has grace for those who repossess themselves. These disciples have only begun to have the idea of letting themselves go. They are not going to get it from one sermon. And we want to... We, this whole idea that we want to have uh, an, just an association with Jesus... Is somehow enough. God is working on you. Do you know that Jesus didn't write any of the books in the Bible? He didn't. But he did something uh, as significant. He carved into into the stony life of Peter, a disciple. He he made books out of his disciples and all his followers. He shaped their lives to be living letters. That's what what God's doing in your life. And he's going to do it through a very humbling process. But that humbling process is going to teach you and I the foundation of humility which restores us to our original state of being made in the image of God, dependent upon God for everything, in the beginning of fullness, fullness, fullness. And so may we understand that we can be awakened out of our non-committal slumber. Let's lose our lives for His service and find true fullness of life, true restored lives, and say yes to surrender for our good and His glory. Our Father. These words are too deep for us to explore in, in just the time we've had. Thank you that they are that way. Thank you that they are deeper than we can comprehend in one sitting and that we have time to to soak this in. Train us, O oh Jesus. Grant to us humility. Make out of our stony hearts hearts that are of flesh and make our lives into a living, written testimony of what you can do. In Spirit, we pray you would do this and actively resist us because we want to take possession of ourselves daily. Thank you for your grace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.